Good evening, Victor. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Just, just fine, thanks. Let's jump right in. Ready when you are. Thrilled to have you with us again. Many of you are wondering how you become a senior executive in the Trump organization. The first thing you do is you work for Saul Goldman for, for 10 years and do 700 deals. That's the preparation, right, George? That's absolutely correct. What I thought we would do today is a little bit of a theme where I know that there's been a lot of questions that have come up over the last couple of months, especially in face-to-face meetings that I've had around negotiation. And many of them are textbook cases. And since we have the author of the, textbooks on, the textbook on the line, what better thing to do than to focus on negotiation tonight? Good. So let's jump right in. Good idea. So, George, I think one of the textbook cases is playing out in front of us in the news, and that's these trade negotiations between the U.S. and China, the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, on Monday, the White House imposed new tariffs on about $200 billion of imports from China, affecting about half the imports from from that country. And uh, this week, on Tuesday, China retaliated with $60 billion, about half of U.S. exports Mm -hmm. to China. And then the White House, in turn, said, well, they may cover the other half with tariffs as well. Now, of course, tariffs are not the point of the negotiation. It's all about the balance of trade. You know, they're really a lever in the negotiation. And it's really all about access to the Chinese market, which is very much a closed market. You know, China's respect for intellectual Mm -hmm. property is somewhere between low and zero. And in order to do business there, you often have to join venture where you very, very quickly lose control. And I know many companies who have tried to do that and experience that. So it's all about negotiation. If you were the lead negotiator for the U.S., what would you be doing right now? Just exactly what Donald Trump is doing. Exactly. At this point, it's, this, is, this has got to work out. It's a question. There's such a tremendous imbalance between the, what we sell to China and what China sells to us. And in order to correct that imbalance, you just have to take a firm stand. And I think the first one that's going to blink is going to be China because they need the United States market more than the United States needs Chinese goods. So there'll be an adjustment price-wise, uh, depending on the ultimate purchase price of the items that are there. But uh, I think that this is just a question of over time, you got to win. They can't win. The, the imbalance is too great. They need the United States market more than the United States needs the Chinese market. And if you know that what's, what's happened over the past is that point is China has put tariffs on most many goods coming from the United States into China. So they're already doing the tariff. But we haven't had corresponding tariff or a tax put on the goods coming from China. And the intellectual property is absolutely true. What has happened is that companies, a lot of U.S. companies, have set up business in China because it's very attractive there from a tax standpoint. But now you have all these American companies making Chinese goods and selling them back to the United States at, a, uh, at no tariff. So this is a, an ongoing situation, which I think will be resolved. It's just a question of time. Between the two positions at that point, the, the United States position is, is much better than the Chinese position, and sooner sooner they're going to realize it. You know, it's interesting. Tariffs are kind of a blunt instrument, but in truth, China's erected some non-tariff trade barriers, and so that's really what you know he's trying to tear down here, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a question, you know, when you say to create some kind of a level playing field, that's the answer. We've been ripped off for years, and not only in the United States, but other countries ripped off by years by years because the, the Chinese economy and the, the salaries they pay are so, are, are so low that they can create goods for sale cheaper than somewhere else. But when they sell those goods cheaper than somewhere else, somebody gets hurt, which is the, the, the other companies that which, which can't compete labor-wise. So they can't sell their goods because they're being undersold by the Chinese goods and the Chinese goods are coming at uh, cheaper prices because of, uh, of labor. So it's, a, it's an evaluate, it's an uh, adjustment 
which has long since been overdue coming and nobody really tackled it or wants to tackle it. Now, there are some companies that are going to be hurt because they won't be able to sell their products to, to as much as so, China because there will be tariffs on them. But that's not, we don't sell that much to China now. That's why you got the imbalance. If we, if, if American companies were, we were selling, selling to China on an equal balance, you wouldn't have the, the tremendous deficit. But a lot of United States goods are not being, would not be accepted in China without a heavy tariff, so they don't go there. On the other hand, the Chinese goods or come in do come into the United States without a tariff, so they're very convenient. So it's, it's an adjustment which, uh, over a period of time, will work out. It's a question of, uh, of, of not if, in my mind, it's a question of when. The imbalance is too great. What I'm saying is China needs the United States to sell into the United States much more than the United States needs to sell into China. It seems like the ongoing negotiation with Canada, where the trade is actually quite balanced, and the only time the balance changes is if the price of oil goes up five bucks or drops five dollars. It's not that the volume changes, it's the price changes. Yeah. It almost seems like Canada's a pawn in the larger game, because the amount that's going to be affected here is a rounding error by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Well, China, I agree with you as far as uh, Canada is concerned. There is an imbalance, but it's not a major imbalance by any means, but there is an imbalance. But I think that if, if in fact, uh, the, the, the trading with Canada is worked out and they are effectively a pawn, this has got to send a, a message to China that Canadian-United States relations of trade-wise has been resolved and it would be a good idea to resolve ours also indicates that a major company, a major country like Canada, you know, it's gotten got to the bargaining table as far as tariffs are concerned. And uh, I think this is be, be very helpful in, in further negotiations with China. I just think it's a question of time based on the, the imbalance. Do you think the midterm elections? No, it's, it's not going to have anything to do with, it, with midterm or what have you. When you get down to it, what's the effect? The effect is that products which are made in China and sold in the United States are going to have a tariff and have a higher price. So people, whoever it is, is going to buy those goods is going to have to decide, do I want to pay the higher price? Or at that point, it makes it make sense that, that I'll deal with companies which don't have the, where I don't have the tariff. So they're from other companies, other countries. So that's ultimately the consumers are going to make the decision as to whether or not how beneficial it is to, to buy Chinese goods as against goods that are available in the marketplace from other countries or from the United States. And that hasn't played out yet because the tariffs haven't played in. But when you're talking about the, the fact that uh, the, the total imbalance, if you straighten out, if you do something to straighten out the imbalance between the two, it's so, so dramatic, between 60 billion and 200 billion. Hey, if you bring, if you bring, bring it in line with 100 billion, that's a lot of money that comes in that can be, can be used for doing advances in the United States. That's a lot of money, especially you could get part of it to new companies do agreeing to do business in the United States and give them some kind of a bonus with the fact that, the, that they will now be competitive against the, with Chinese goods. It's, a, it's quite a can of worms, but it, it's, it should be resolved. I think it will be resolved. It's just a question of time. It has to be. It has to be. It has, it would ha I mean, it has to be because of the fact that, that China needs the United States as its customer more than the United States needs China as its customer. And there aren't that many goods that are made in China at that point that are so good, except from a price standpoint. 
Absolutely. When you consider that China holds 25% of U.S. treasuries, the reason that happened, of course, is because of the, the trade imbalance. The of central course. government has of not course. known what to do except go buy U.S. treasuries with all those excess U.S. Well, that, dollars. Yeah, but it, what, what has happened is that the imbalance has created the deficit and they, you're sort of writing out more bonds, which China is buying. Why? Because they know the United States economy is great. They're not buying them because they intend to lose money. But they, they, they know the United States economy is great. Why? Because they're pushing it up. By selling their goods on an attractive basis, they are now also uh, buying uh, United States paper. So they're turning it into good dollars. It's about time it was tackled. Everybody's recognized it. But no, there's the, the concept, the tariffs are bad. Yeah. Tariffs, they are a problem. And they are totally, they're not reciprocal. For example, if you, can't, you can't sell United States cars in Germany. They put a high tariff on it. Well, why don't we put a tariff on the German cars? True enough. So, you know, so meanwhile, that's why uh, they can be competitive and sell their, their vehicle into the United States. But the United States can't sell their vehicles into Germany or other countries where there is a tariff. If you have free trade, it should be free trade. But, if you, but it's, not, it's not really free when you have different tariffs put on different goods in different countries. So it's a it's a been a pro, been a problem still a problem going on for a long period of time and my feeling is on this is is going to be solved it's just a question of when I think that Trump is on the exactly on the right track and I don't think that there is any decision coupled with the fact this is what he said he was going to do yes it does so that's going that's a major factor because if you look at his record among any everything else. He seems to be doing what he said he was going to do, whether the, anybody else likes it or doesn't like it. It's not an idle threat, in my estimation. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else he could do to strengthen or maintain his leverage that he's not doing? He's got the leverage. No, the leverage, the next thing you're going to see is they're going to go, they're going to go and put bigger tariffs on the Chinese. So you're now looking, you're saying uh, 200 billion of imports as against 60 billion of exports. Hey, that's 140 billion. Even if you straighten it out to 100 billion, it's a lot. It's a, you know, it's a lot of money. So it's just a, it's a question of how much you're going going to do. But it, all the all the the, car, the cards are in the United States' favor, not in not in China's favor. They don't like whack it away. But nevertheless, this is what has been created. And if you get the intellectual property concept, is something which is very very real. And you know they've been taking our intellectual property. You can't patents in China forget, you know, they don't, United States patents, they don't recognize. So they steal your know-how, your scientific know-how to make products that are cheaper and sell them back to you and, and at a lower price than you could get. But they, so they're buying the technology, not buying it. They're, they're getting it free and using it to their advantage. So, yes, indeed. Yep. Okay. That's the story with that. We haven't solved that one, but keep an eye on it. You, it, it, it my question is to be solved. I don't know when, but in the not too distant future. I think China's going to blink. They have no choice when they get to get down to it. And I think good part of it comes up is that every all the other presidents knew about this, but nobody had the courage to tackle it. Well, I think one of the naive things is that the Chinese believe that if the Democrats win an extra, you know, a couple of seats in the House, that somehow that'll tip the balance against the White House. And I think a lot of the Democrats actually will support what Donald's doing in this case. Absolutely, mathematics are there. You can't not. It's not not with Donald. It's not so way out, way out of bounds by any means. And even if somebody says, "Well, we should not basically rough up the relationships with with China because of their their impact in their economy," when somebody's taking advantage of you, you got to uh, you got to fight back. And I I agree. I don't think it has anything to do with the election. And I do think that what's going to happen is have them put the income that's going to come into the United States 
as a result of the of the tariffs, that money is going to trickle down somewhere into advantage but th that you can use it. If you use it for infrastructure or you can use it for all kinds of, it's a lot of dollars that are coming in. Unless you say, well, it won't come in because people will stop buying the, in the United States, are not going to buy the Chinese goods when the tariff, it's going to raise the price of it too high. I don't think that's true, but, but you also have to have a certain amount, a certain degree of quality. And uh, well, you can see it, see, it, see it changing now. Interesting subject. What's next? Next question is from Michael Reimer. So Michael has a situation where he's looking to, to purchase a waste management company from a family member, and the original offer was to seller finance the business purchase, and now the seller is saying that they want cash. Problem is the business hasn't proven itself to be standalone from the current owner, and paying cash would transfer too much of the risk to Michael, the buyer. And, you know, the, the seller has really no experience selling businesses or valuing businesses, and they don't fully appear to understand the risk and how to, and how to balance the risk. So they've changed their minds several times throughout the negotiation. He's unlikely to find another buyer for the business. How would you suggest that Michael approaches this negotiation? Well, that's a, that's a, it's a very good question. Uh, it's, got, it's got a lot of facets to it, which requires that. First of all, buying something from a family member is treacherous. Because if something goes wrong, you have a problem with the family, and you don't need that type of aggravation. When you have a dime buying from an independent party, if things go bad, it's not it doesn't affect the family relationship. But that's that's just an um, an ancillary item. That's not the main issue here by any means. Right. What you have here is a a not a a, a typical. Uh, it's I would say it's a situation which you run into many times, and that is that you have. The other side is inept, inexperienced, or not strong enough, and they keep they don't really negotiate. They keep trying more and more, so it's harder to make a deal at this because they constantly change it. The transaction, as it originally contemplated, was fine, and to turn it from a a, a, a cash basis to a some type of a finance purchase of of, a, of the company it becomes very hazardous and. You don't really have a knowledgeable seller. It's the fact that he doesn't know the businesses or he doesn't know the price. That's supposed to be signed. You don't have it and doesn't look like he, one, one of the parties is involved. loves to that negotiates, 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 but never finishes. And that's a problem to anyone. So the thing that's the solution to it is very simple. You set a time limit and you tell the, the seller, hey, if you're not ready to honor the uh, original deal, Forget it. I'm off. I'm gone. And you got a week or two weeks at that point to tell me yes or no, and then I'm out of there. I I am I'm tying my money up in other other areas. Now that may or may not work, but if it doesn't work, go on to something else where it will. There are mm -hmm. many situations which come up with all you can do. You can negotiate, but you can never finish because you've got the people on the other side. Are, are they they love to negotiate, but they they always think they can do more, or they just they're not ready to make a deal. They have to be critical. They have to want to do it. I don't think in this instance the the, the seller really wants to sell. It turns well, out. I think he wants to sell. Yeah, he wants, I think to, the, he wants to sell on an unrealistic basis. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I and think. This, this the, is one of these things that I see is very common. In fact, I was reading a statistic a couple of weeks ago where of the businesses that are owned by baby boomers that are aging out of their business, mm -hmm. only one in 13 will actually sell. Sure. The rest will shut down. No, I had, I, I had a, 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 an analogous situation 
All right. In in as, as far as also happened, came up through Saul Goldman. We're buying a hotel in in Texas, Mineral Wells, Texas. The price was a million dollars in paper because the hotel was in bad shape. Went down to Texas, ready to make the deal, and after being wined and dined by the the seller's attorney, he says, "We we changed the deal, uh, not the deal. We don't want to take the paper. We want a million dollars in cash." I got on the plane and left. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. That we got nothing more to discuss. The the concept changes. It changed so dramatically that you you have to question the, the integrity of the seller. And that's what I did did, did there, and then never got made. That's so we'll go on and move on to the next. Here, I don't think this deal is ever going to be made unless the prospective person puts a time limit on it and says well, you got the, you gave you this was the original deal. If you want to do the original deal. You give me a, here's, here's, it's got to be done by a certain period of time. If not, I'm out of it. Don't even talk. I won't talk about it again. I'm through. And if you convince them that this, that works, they got a chance. If you don't, you're probably not. In my, in my experience, I would say the chance of making this deal is 90% negative because of the, the people on the other side. He's just not a, he's not a real seller. He's, a, you know, why do you change it to all cash? I don't blame him. At this, but that was not the way it was originally proposed. In addition right, to the right. fact that as a family member, it's, a, it's going to create some ill will. So there is time. There's, there's a time in negotiation. You have to know when to say, hey, take it or leave it. And if the other side says, leave it, walk. Walk. doesn't mean the deal is off. It means it's off for now. When you got to that, it would do that. You said, I'm off. and not going to do it. The, the seller in this instance will probably go out to see if he can get a better price from somebody else which it doesn't look like he can as he's not an anxious seller and maybe come back and say, you know, I'm ready to make the deal, the original deal. Okay. You can decide now if he comes back, now you can renegotiate the deal because it indicates further weakness on the part of the seller. So you're going to take advantage. Say, Hey, I told you that deal was off and now you come back and you want, it's not there anymore. I've, I've made other arrangements for my money and you can renegotiate at a lower price because now you're, you're the highest bidder. Interesting tactical arrangement, but it happens very often. Would a would a third party helping educate both the buyer? There's nothing and the to educate. Seller? No, it's not a question of. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing to educate the 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 buyer on. Basically, but from the from this, it's a small local uh, waste management business, which is this. What are you, you going to educate the buyer? The buyer basically says, "Hey, there's more risk at this than I don't risk on the seller." So the seller's got to take back paper which was the original deal. That's fine. Changing a, 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 a deal with some financing terms to all cash is hazardous. There's nothing to educate. The education here is say, good, the time has come. Let's go on. Let's do some other deals. And I can spend my time working on something that's going to be more productive than a, a constant negotiation situation, which is going nowhere. I think that's great advice. Yeah. And it's important to, for, for the people that are listening to this. It comes to time. Put a time limit on when you when when you have negotiation, 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 and you have something you get on the table. Put a time limit on and say here, that's it. The time limit, take it or leave it. And if the time limit is not met, you leave it. In other words, no take it, you're gone. They're not. So it's got to be something that they respect. So if you make the time limit 30 days, 60 days, whatever it may be, or just say good, that's it. But at the end of that period of time, you're you're gone. You can't make a time limit. Give me another 30 days. All you'll do is end up in negotiation on a constant basis because he knows the original time limit was not something that was, was real. It was fictional. 
And this is one of the things, things that I've always done in my negotiation when somebody says, it's got I got to have a deal. Uh, we got to sign the papers by next week. And I say, oh, by next week, look, the truth is I'm going to be out of, out of the country for, for next week at this point. How about instead of next week, the week after? And they says, okay, the week after. All that shows is, hey, that was a phony time limit. There was no reason for it other than the fact that you took a push. So you test the time limit and see whether or not it's a legitimate time limit. Or was it just a uh, negotiating stance, which is, it's not a line in the sand. I love it. Well, it's a lot to be learned in that type of of situation. You've got to test all the results. In other words, I would go back if I were in this situation, which is there, I'd say, hey, do you really want to sell the business or do you want to just go negotiate? And I'd like to see what he says. He says, well, I really want to sell the business. Then you've got to be realistic. You have to take part of the risk. If you don't want to take part of the risk, I don't want to buy the business. So. That's what I would do, but I think in this instance, and it's coupled with a family member, it's not. There are other deals around that are more valuable time-wise, and with a greater likelihood of success. That takes care of that one, I think. Perfect. I do. I do too. Okay. The next question comes from CJ. So she's been trying to raise capital for a small project and hasn't been getting a lot of success. And she's been trying to network and relationship build with a lot of private money lenders. She's essentially been cold calling acquaintances and that hasn't been working very well. So the question is, should she be taking a different approach? Is she be slowing down, having a smaller number of deeper conversations versus talking to as many you know, potential investors as possible. And how should she be approaching the conversation? Because what she's doing isn't working. Well, no, the conversation, the, the, the cold calling doesn't work. When it's a cold calling, even dealing with people that are not cold calling but are, have not, are not real active investors is, is, hazard, is more difficult. The, what is missing from what you're saying is, does CJ have a track record? If she has a track record, then, then she, that, that's, that's what you sell. If you have no track record, forget it. Why should they deal with you? They'll deal with some, some other company that has a track record. Show me, show, me, show me the goods and I'll decide that I want to invest with you. So you need a profit and loss statement. You need a, a business plan. But you have to have a project with a track record. And if, in fact, DJ is, has a particular transaction which, which has put up money of her own wherever she got it from, uh, from a mortgage or from a, a loan from a relative or what have you, and she's got that, got something in the deal, that's a calling card. People don't like to go into transactions where the sponsor of the transaction has no, nothing, you know, no fat in the no fire. Skin in the game. Yeah, skin in the game is right. So it's, 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 it's do it cold doesn't work. Cause they, why should I invest with you? You have to show them what did you do? I mean, well, you know, you know that, Victor. Good. Hey, if you, if, can you sell a, 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 pro, a project you haven't built to the people you don't even know? Of course not. The only way that I've been successful in doing that, for example, you know, right now I'm doing a large multifamily project and I, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't done 300 unit multifamily projects. Yeah. So yeah. I brought someone in as a partner who's done 10,000. Fine. That's fine. But meanwhile, but they've got, that's where the track record is. The track record is from somebody who's done the 10,000. I think she has that. So that's, I think that's she has that in her team. But if she has that, 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 that's what basically that you should be selling. Say, so here's the track record. Here's what it is. Give them a, a prepare a business plan showing good. Well, here's the investment. If you put in X number of dollars, here's the return you're going to get and how much how much profit you're going to make over a period of time. And back it up with with all the reasons why. 
with the with the financial information and uh, everything that's critical to convince somebody it's a good deal. But just going cold, cold calling doesn't work. So one of the things I think she's struggling with is also developing the relationships, the deep enough relationships with the folks who are looking to place money. Would you have any words of guidance for her on how to establish yeah, those relationships? Yeah, how about if they're looking to place money at this point? It's not, you can't unless she's got, if she has sources of transactions and she thinks that's good. So that, the, what, now what you are is you're not really, you're a broker. You know, if you if you want to broker deal, somebody's got the somebody else has the transaction and you go to sell it, that's fine. If you can do that and you make the money from the the person that you're that you're that you're selling is the product, that's fine too. But the brokerage, if if you try to do it yourself as a, a principal without having the capital or without having a track record, it becomes inherently uh, very difficult to do. Well, if you look, for example, at the very first project that Donald did, I mean, he didn't have a track record. He could have positioned himself as a broker and taken 2%, but he didn't. He negotiated himself into the deal as a principal. No, but he wanted to be the principal. All right, but wait, wait a little different calling card. <laughs> yeah, you had a father there who's, who's, who was worth hundreds of millions. So that was the that was the calling card. Did you say good? Why why should why should it work? Because well, hey, I'm Fred Trump's son, and my father's got built properties all over uh, New York, and this is my the basis of my expertise. So take a chance with me. But and they they said okay along the lines that they would do it, but it was not the other people weren't putting in the money; they were putting in the expertise. So we got that's why you got it uh, with the hotel at that point you had to get Hyatt and put everything together and show, show that it's going to work. Not and the way the only way it can show you work it may be novel, but your calling card is that you are Fred Trump's son and he's got a lot of dollars and also smart enough to use some someone who had political savvy and track record savvy. In dealing with government, with dealing with governmental agencies in the city, cities, and the state, and he became your the face that would be used. He gave credibility to the fact that Donald didn't have the experience. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So next, this one is actually from my business, and I've been negotiating with several conventional lenders on a conventional construction loan, and I've got a fair bit of experience with construction loans at the eighty percent loan to cost threshold. Mm -hmm. And yeah. many yeah. of my yeah. recent transactions uh, have yeah. been at that 80%, but most of my recent conversations with lenders, the lenders have started the conversation at the 65 to 70% loan-to-cost, which is a pretty big departure from what I've experienced even as recently as a couple of months ago. And so, you know, I'm trying mm -hmm. to negotiate with them, so I've offered to escrow contingency funds with the lender, escrow yeah. a reserve fund to cover an initial operating deficit. Yeah. And, you know, some of the lenders have said that'll help. You know, that might get you to 75% mm -hmm. loan to cost. But more importantly, some of my partners in the project are starting to get scared by the process and worry that we're approaching the whole loan process incorrectly. I believe we can negotiate with banks and ultimately get the loan package that meets our, our needs. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. What's been your experience? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the, the answer is, yeah, you can. But have you thought about giving them some type of a uh, getting an entity, a moneyed entity with uh, that can give some type of a guarantee for the discrepancy between the 70 percent and the 80 percent or 65 percent? So get some company that would guarantee 15 percent of the loan if in the event that it goes into default and they get paid for that privilege. 
So now that you get a company that by putting their guarantee on the line at this, they get a fee for the guarantee, but the risk is remote because of the loan, you know, the property is still going to get built. So the, the bank now, the bank now says, okay, I will make the loan. And I got a 65% loan to value and I got a 15% guarantee from an entity. The guarantee is not security. A guarantee is a recourse, which is a little different. Yes, absolutely. And that's all they really need because that's where they would be if you had the 85 to 80%. That makes up for the discrepancy between the loan, the, the lower loan to value and what they would do at 80, if it were 80%. And this is this technique I've seen used many times. Donald has used it many times. In other words, to cover the difference between the amount you have on a construction loan and the actual cost of construction. You get somebody to guarantee the difference in the event that there is a, a foreclosure. Okay, so it's almost like a bond? So it's, a, it's a bridge loan. It's what it is. It's a bridge loan without money, if you don't need the money. It's a contingency. It's a contingency, absolutely. And they get paid for it. And this is, this is I've seen this technique have been used in very, very successfully, where effectively you now have, you're building a building, which uh, Donald, of course, of course, built. And he says, here's a sellout. I'm going to sell all these condominium units and I'm going to make $600 million. And bank says, okay, how do I know you're going to do that? And do you have the sales con? I don't have the contracts yet, but I will. But meanwhile, you get a major company that says, yeah, he's going to do it. So to the extent that the sale price of the units is less than the amount of the loan, we'll come up with the loan. We'll come up with the difference. So they, they they now fill in the gap of a major change in the marketplace between the time you, you consider making the, the construction and the actual date of sale, because maybe it is, maybe it's not. Because you're now saying, okay, fine, I'm going to I'm building it for 600 million, and I'm going to make uh, 800 million, so I got a 200 million profit. But I don't see that 200 million profit unless I sell the units three years after I build them. So you get so you you work out a deal with with a, a a some company that's willing to take the risk that this happens to give some assurance to the ultimate lender, be it a construction loan or a permit or a takeout or whatever it is. Not a new, not unusual. Very good concept and works works very well and not difficult to get somebody to write because why they're not putting up any money. All they're putting is a that's correct. They're putting up a guarantee. Correct. And now, if you can convince them that you that you know what you're doing, which you can, based on your your past your track record as to how good it is, and the only thing you're really doing is you're giving them additional security, but the difference between making a loan at 65% of uh, of value as against 80% of value. So that's that's the difference, and that's that's arbitrary on their part. Yeah, it works fine, works fine. But uh, you know, something to, to to definitely consider. And there are entities moneyed entities which are willing to do that because what they're doing they are guarant- they are effectively say if say good if the loan goes sour i'm a, i'm good for 15% if the deal goes sour but you know the deal is not going to go sour and the risk is not that great and they'll look at you and say good what's my what's your track record well your track record is going to indicate good i know what i'm doing in building and it came out it worked out very well very interesting so presumably they, they, they occupy from a security standpoint almost yeah. second lien position, although it's not a lien as yeah. such. Yeah, exactly right. Without a without a guaranteed without a, a guaranteed mortgage or anything. Yeah. So it's not a second mortgage. 
Well, all, all he needs to find that. Yeah, correct. All he needs to find Yep. Right. Absolutely. Fascinating. Okay. Well, on the topic of financing, okay. we've had another offer. This one's kind of off the wall, and I don't know how seriously to take it, but I know that you and Donald have done a bunch of work in the bond market, and this is to do essentially an industrial bond mm-hmm. instead of a conventional construction loan. Now, your traditional bond underwriter simply underwrites the bond, and at the end of the day, you still have to market it. In this particular case, the bond underwriter claims to have a relationship with a collection of foreign investors that are looking to place funds in U.S. industrial bonds, enabling them to take funds that might be sitting in lawyer trust accounts in the U.S. and actually put them in the to work in the U.S. in a tax-advantageous way. And they're, they're trying to make the deal quite attractive, almost like a risk reversal. So there's only a very small, let's say, $20,000 upfront fee and then they would take the, their fee for the full underwriting and placement of the bond at the back end out of the bond proceeds. It almost sounds too good to be true. What, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I've seen it, I've seen it done uh, at this, but this, I've also seen it extremely hazardous for the, uh, the sponsor, whoever the sponsor may be, as good as it sounds, and it does sound, it does sound really good. When I say assuming now, that that gets done. First of all, you're going to have to go to get it through some federal or state agency that's going to, that is basically is going to say, okay, you have to register. So it's the attorney general or someone that has to register and you, you file a prospectus or a whole plan as to what you're planning on doing. Now, if in fact, if it gets done, if something goes sour, whoever wrote it, the sponsor is going to be personally on the hook. I don't care what the papers say. Because you're going to have a lot of bondholders which are unhappy, and they're going to say you misrepresented. You said this, and it's not that. It didn't work out. If it works out, fine. But if it doesn't work out, you got you got more. Well, everybody that bought a bond, you're going to end up with a major lawsuit, in which you're going to have a, 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 a you know one basic party that starts the lawsuit, and everybody joins on, and that's where you have a problem. And you will also have the government, whoever wrote it, whoever write it. Directly involved, because they may say to the uh, to, to the state, why did why didn't you check it out? Why didn't you 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 when you said okay and you gave me the authority to do this under this underwriting at this point now it turns bad. You did something wrong, so it's a monumental lawsuit. And uh, publicly, depending upon who the bondholders are, it's I question it. I've seen it done very well. I've seen it. I've also seen it basically blow up. Right. So while it's non recourse on paper. You're you're going to be facing major litigation in the event that something goes. Make be facing major litigation, which could which would be very expensive. In addition, whatever reputation you have is now gone. Yeah. So it's 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 not the route I would suggest that a prudent person take. I think it's too hazardous, and I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, it came on. You know, the, the you, you know the story with Trump University. Yeah. Well, Trump University. I was dead set against it. And I told that to Donald. I said, because what you're doing now is you're selling, you're, you're licensing your name as if, in fact, you are doing lectures and you're doing all the, the, the teaching and you're having somebody else do it. And what happens is if they don't do it right, they don't do it the right, do it the way it should be. If there's any recourse, they're going to come back to you. And the answer was, yeah, but I'll make a lot of money. And I said, yeah, you'll make, you'll make a lot of money, but you, it's, it's not the way to go. 
In other words, don't license your expertise if you're not going to be directly involved. And you see what happened, ultimately. And, you know, even Robert Kiyosaki experienced the same thing with Russ Whitney. Yes, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. If you can do it. It's, it's good because you're, you're, what you're doing is you're licensing you. You're, it's, it's not you, you know, your, your reputation. You're licensing your reputation. If I put my name on it, it's got to be good. That's really what it is, really what you're doing. The answer is, yeah, if, it's, if you put your name on it and it's not good, they're going to come back to you if you, you put your name on it. I was, you defrauded me. You did this and you end up with a big mess. And uh, it's, it's just certainly not worth it. Great advice. Okay, the next question is from Matthew. Matthew, you're on, or you're on the line? I'm here, uh, George. Okay, Jeffers. go ahead. Hi there. Just, uh, Hi there. Get unmuted. Um, we got Matthew. You sort of, yeah, Matt. Good. You sort of kind of answered the project a little, or the question a little bit earlier. Is ours similar to the question CJ had? We've had a recurring issue. We're not sure if it's good or bad, but every time we look at a development project, even if we're trying to find something small, it turns into a large project. We're just trying to get started in development, but even searching for small base hits, we end up making bigger and creating a home run by finding projects maximum potential. Recently, it's happened to us again. The problem lies in the fact that we're inexperienced. We don't have the biggest track record. We can't fund it slowly on our own. And we haven't been successful yet at raising capital for these types of projects. The numbers, the locations, they're great, but we can't seem to get them off the ground. What can you say to help us solve this problem? Well, let's solve the problem. The, 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 you know, the... the Every time when you go from a small project to a large project, the risk becomes that much greater. If in fact mm-hmm. you're you're betting the ranch or you're getting some people that are going to bet the ranch on that, and you don't have the expertise because you didn't have the hand, enough experience in handling large projects, then you're going to have very severe repercussions. So you got to crawl before you can run. It's as simple as that. And so you 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 have to focus on projects which you can handle, smaller ones, even though it's very attractive. To think well, if I can do it for, if I can do it for a small project, I can do it for a huge project. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You got you got to cut your, your your teeth on a smaller project because what happens if that goes sour? You can handle it because it was small enough. But you mm-hmm. go after a major project if that goes sour, you're out of business. And That's true. You just don't have the expertise and you don't have the the unlimited funds that are necessary to do it. Very very tempting. Oh, it's very tempting because the numbers are there and it's there. And yeah, it's yeah there. the numbers are there. The numbers are there. Yeah. But you, uh, the risk is, is is that much greater and you haven't got the experience to handle it. And you, you learn by handling the smaller projects and saying, this happened, this went good, this went bad. And now how do I solve it next time at this if I go to a bigger project? They're all the same, the projects. It's just a question of one involves more dollars and the more dollars are more of a risk, depending upon what you have to accomplish to do it. So if you're, if you're building a one-family house, it's not like building a, a major apartment facility. No. All right. the, the concept is basically the same, but the risk is not. And you, and you have to be careful to, to, to keep the risk within bounds. And this gives experience. Don't rush. Take your time. You learn. That's how you learn. If you have yeah. a, 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 a problem that comes up on a small transaction, you learn from that. If that problem came up on a large transaction, you're out of business. George, is there a scenario where where Matthew and Patrick bring in a partner that you know they conceive the project, they they get it under contract, they get it off the ground, but then they bring in a partner Absolutely. to execute? Absolutely. Absolutely. But they're gonna do it. 
if they bring in the partner to execute, Matthews has to, you have to convince the partner that's going to select that you know what you're doing. And the first thing they're going to say, good, what's your track record? Well, track yeah. record is, if the track record is, is I did, I did five of these smaller projects and they all worked out well. Here's the financial statement, the P&L on those four, five transactions. So now I'm ready to go into a major transaction. But if you don't have the first five, you, it's, it's going to be hard to convince somebody that you know what you're doing on a larger basis because you're the one yeah. that's saying it's going to work. Yeah. Now, if this person we bring in can see the deal and understand the deal as well and has done deals of this. That's fine. Um, if they can see it or see it a deal and they're not relying a great upon you, the answer is sure. But the, this, the, depending on what role, what role you're going to play in the deal after it's, after it's basically signed. Yeah, I mean, we'd understand. We'd, we'd have to give the lesser. Yeah, I mean, who, 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 who? It's not just something that says you're out of it when you sell it, or you, you you do it. Are you finished with it, or are you still involved? You're still involved, then they're gonna say, good. Well, what do you do? And you got to prove that you have the criteria to do it. So if you're going to build a building or get involved with the with construction of a building, you have to say, yeah, I did it before. I constructed it, or it wasn't the same, but it was the same. I I have knowledge in the construction industry. And I brought my, my uh, all, bought all my uh, projects in under budget or on budget or on time, and that, so you have to show that you have a track record that, that you can perform what it is that that they think you're going to perform or you say you can. What's your worth to the investor? If you can prove your worth to the investor, he's going to invest. If you can't, then not. Yeah, because it's only the investor, not not in the project itself. Yeah, okay. but the but the, the main thing is is, is if if your investor is that good, you got to watch out he doesn't steal the project. If well, that's the other you. thing, right? <laughs> he doesn't need you. They don't need you. They steal the project. They tell you I'm not going into it, but they like it, and they just but just want to eliminate you as the middleman. So they don't have to pay you, or they don't have to pay for your expertise. So you have to watch out that that doesn't happen. That's However, if you're dealing with someone that's only in the financial end and doesn't have the expertise to do the construction or to bring the deal, that's fine. There are people who just want to put in money. You got you got somebody mm. putting in the money. That's 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 fine. Just make sure that's what they're going to do. Okay. Basically, so find the money, put together a good team that has the yeah. experience, and then mm. figure out the structure. Exactly. So I can tell the structure to other investors. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely right. Okay. Very good. Thank you, George. Okay. All right. The next question is from Ryan Gibson. Ryan, are you on the line? Hi, Mr. Ross. Hi, Victor. Thanks for taking my question. You call me George. Don't call me Mr. Ross. You make me sound too old. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. No, I appreciate it. So we currently have a team of five people on our in our organization. And one thing that we want to do is we want to continue growing our team and we want to hire the best people. Mm-hmm. So how would you structure the company so that we can continue to grow and add the best people to our team? Keeping in mind that, you know, we, we're a development company, so and we have small business cash flow, so paying the highest salaries possible may not be the both the best you know may may not be our may not be a, a an option for us. Fine, okay. This this is not an unusual situation by any means. You ever heard of profit sharing? Yes. Profit sharing. If somebody produces, they get a share of the profits, or they get a bonus. So you give them the incentive is if they develop so many projects and make so much money for the company, it shows up in their uh, in their income. Either in they get a piece of the company, or they get profit sharing, or it's a as a bonus. So that's building the incentive, but the incentive is not paying, is not overpaying into year one or, or, right. or in the start. So the incentive is saying if they're, if they're looking to make $100,000 and you, and you give them 100000 
that what's their incentive to continuing on? So if you say, look, I don't care if you make 300,000 at this point, but here's what you have to do. Right now, I'll pay you 50,000 or whatever the, whatever the number is, but, but you get a certain percentage of what's what you bring in and what worth it is to the, to, to my company. So that's, the, that's the key. It works. What if the profit isn't realized for a couple of years and the person so that it, for what they got a vested interest? True. They got a vested interest. So that you say, you say here, here's what it is. The profit doesn't have to be immediate profit, but there has to be the, the benefit that's, uh, that's going to be available when the, when the project comes to fruition, when they, what they've done. So they see, they get the money just not, not right now because you, you don't, you know, on advanced cash as against a, uh, a, a, a future stream of income. Makes sense. You know, you're not guaranteeing the crash, but meanwhile they build up. So you'll get five percent, three percent, eight percent, whatever the number is of that transaction over and above the money that we put into it. Makes so sense. Here, do you think we should? Do you think we should reserve a portion of the the company's equity, or do you think it should be equity from a specific deal? No, you can do, you can reserve a certain portion of it, but the but then you have to be sure that you have the the necessary documentation to indicate how that portion gets. Funded out so that it's realistic. Excellent. So that you, you say fine. So they know his who he was. So it's it's uh, having a set of documents. But you say, look here, here's what it is. Hey, if in fact we make X month, X number of dollars, you're going to get it shows up in your salary. It shows up in your income. Now it can show up in two ways. One, it can show up in something that you have done yourself, in which case you get. Or it can show up if you're part of the company. You can you will share in it as being part of the company, even if you did nothing. If your your area of expertise didn't work out, but the rest of the other people we hired did work out, you get a piece of the fact that it, it, it worked that way. Makes sense. So it's, so it's not, and it, it, it does. So it's a, I've seen it done where individual departments or individual projects are treated separately, and also I've seen it where it's it's part of a total operation. So now you say, hey, if if our company at this in far development company does what does great, does over over X number of dollars, you're going to get a piece of it. If it does, if if you if you're in a specific area of expertise, and your specific area of expertise becomes a money maker, you get a piece of that. Or you can do it or a combination. Makes sense. Yeah, but don't don't the main thing you stay out of is giving a large income, a large amount of income. In, initially, because you think they're going to develop, or you think they're going to be very good, it has to be somebody who's hungry but and thinks that they can produce. Right? How would you handle, you know, that person needing to eat while they go hunt? No, they, they want to improve it. They want to improve their position. They're not hungry. No, but I mean, as far as you know, hey, you're going to come on board. You're going to do some great things for us. You're going to share in the profit. The profit may not come for a year. Yeah. But that person, that person needs to you know, take care of his, you know, family and, and keep the lights on at home. You know, how, how do you, how would you handle that? Well, yeah, but you could, you, you can work out all kinds of resistance that to the, to the extent that the, to, that the total profit isn't going to be there immediately when they want it, you can make some advances. Right. Makes sense. To, 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 to cover the, 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 the time interval between the profits being realized in cash and the needs of the um, employee. Ryan, are you building transaction fees or developer fees into your projects? We are. We are. We, we've just started that in the last three acquisitions. And, you know, we have been able to pay salaries out of those to the existing team members, uh, which has been incredibly helpful. And 
you know, we're trying to build up, you know, good operating reserves for the company. Well, you're um, on the right track. Right. Okay. You're on the right I mean, track and building up the operating reserves. And then for the people that you bring in, bring in that, that you're paying them less money than they need. And on the, the concept of getting future income, the reserve is there. So you now say, look, in the event that you really need more need more money, you can't live on what it is that, that, that comes with some un, un, unexpected expenditure, we'll take it out of our reserve. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so we'll take it out of a reserve and we'll 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 get it back. So we'll make a loan to you based on uh, income you're com- you're going to get in the future. Right, right. Works fine. No, that's great. That's good advice. Thank you so much. And setting up the reserve is wonderful. Yeah, we're we're pretty big about that, and and that's big, you know, big, of- and a, a big big concept. We set up a reserve, so you that you what you've really done is you've created a contingency fund. Right. And that's great. And it certainly becomes attractive to uh, anyone who's looking to join your organization. Say, I've covered uh, my immediate needs are covered, and I have an opportunity to make a tremendous amount of money if I can produce. Right. That's that's the the idea. That's the idea. Idea, and it's it's a very very saleable. You're on the right track. Thanks. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Okay, Victor. Yes, we're at the top of the hour. We didn't quite get through all the questions, so we'll keep them for next month. Keep them for next week. Yeah. For next month. We'll win it right. Okay? Thank you so okay. much, George. Have a great Take evening. Care. You too. All right. Cheers. Bye for now. There's another monthly edition of the George Ross Mastermind. If you've got a question for George, just send an email to askgeorge at realestateguysradio.com. Make sure you get your questions in at least two days before the next Mastermind. Successful syndicating.